Hello, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, the text and audio journal that I put out every week where I try to bring the truth of Christ crucified to bear on pretty much everything that we think about and do in our Christian lives. And in last week's edition, we discussed the advantages of thinking about the Christian life as an apprenticeship. We talked about how the word disciple might almost better be translated as apprentice. That is, that we're the kind of learners or students who devote ourselves to learn from our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, a whole new knowledge and a whole new way of life based on that knowledge, like an apprentice. And as promised, um, that was a prelude to this week's edition, where we're going to bring that idea of apprenticeship to bear on the tiny little insignificant question of how to read and apply the Bible to our lives, just that little thing. And eventually, by doing that, we will cycle our way back, briefly at least, to that issue of church and worship that started this train of thought running a couple of weeks ago. So if you're new to The Painful Truth, uh, you can go to the website, that's thepainfultruth.substack.com, and read those earlier posts of which this is kind of a continuation. It's kind of number three in a series of three, in a way. Uh, before we dive into today's episode, though, just a couple of quick things. Uh, first of all, I do realise that this question of what we call the church gathering and whether worship is the right category is hardly the most pressing and important question in the world, especially at the moment. And to be truthful, it doesn't quite get my juices flowing like it once did, a decade or two ago, but it is a very convenient illustration for the larger and more important point that I want to talk about in today's episode and which this whole issue is is part of. And so I hope you'll bear with me in, uh, in using the worship thing as a kind of little illustration of this larger point. And the second point, just before we get cracking, is that the larger issue we're talking about today is indeed a large issue, a very large issue. And I have struggled to keep the length of this week's episode down without really succeeding, to be honest. It's a longer than usual painful truth this week. Uh, happily, though, I am off on holidays next week and won't be posting anything or putting out a new episode next Monday. So you've got two weeks to listen or chew your way through the exciting adventure that is Apprenticeship to Scripture. And that's the title and topic of this week's edition. Being biblical in our thinking and action is a bit like healthy eating, it seems to me. It's something that most Christians would like to think they're at least trying to do, but it's not always clear what's involved or what qualifies. For example, is a practice or concept biblical if it fits within the bounds of what the Bible says or permits, or is at least silent about? Or is that too low a bar? Is something only really biblical if the Bible commands it quite explicitly or, or positively endorses it in some way? Or is acting in a biblical way more about the vibe, the theological vibe that you get when you put together the various teachings and themes of Scripture? Or is it some combination of all of these? How do we start with all the different things that we find in the Bible, all that the Bible asserts and teaches or narrates or describes or commands, 
and then conclude in any particular situation what would be the, the good and godly or biblical thing to do. And this is not at all always straightforward. So with regard to our little illustration, with regard to church and worship, would it be quite reasonable and biblical to use the category of worship as a primary way of understanding and describing our gatherings, and in particular, the singing we do in our gatherings? As in, welcome to our service of worship this morning, or please join us now as we worship our God in song. Or, on the other hand, would it be more helpful to avoid this kind of language, worship sort of language, as a primary category for understanding and describing our church gatherings or our singing, on the basis that the New Testament doesn't really do so. It doesn't command us to do this, and in fact it hardly ever uses this language in relation to church or singing itself. How does the Bible direct us towards an answer on this, or for that matter, on, on any contemporary issue? Now, in thinking about this question, we're about to traverse some pretty deep and complicated waters. And there have been many theologians and scholars much smarter than me who've been thrashing about in these waters for centuries to name-check just three historically massive debates for those who are up on such things. Uh, we're really in the same waters as the regulative versus normative principle discussion at the time of the Reformation and, and beyond. It's also in the zone of the hermeneutics debate that's been raging for most of the past century about whether and how ancient texts can speak to modern cultures. And we're also in the general zone of the controversy within Christian ethics at the moment about what place the Bible has as a source of authority in ethical thought. Now, I've been swimming about in these waters quite a lot over the past several years, but I don't intend to take you with me on a deep dive academically into them. We'll be sticking fairly close to the surface, and so I do apologise in advance for various things that I will miss out or treat fairly simplistically in what follows. And for those of you who do wish to think deeper and further, I'll mention some further things to read below. What I want to do, though, is to outline two good but inadequate approaches to being biblical about our circumstances and our decisions, and then suggest a third approach that I think is more helpful and useful, and that unsurprisingly has something to do with apprenticeship. The first common approach to applying the Bible to our lives is to focus on the Bible's explicit commands, or commands, depending on whether you come from Adelaide. And this, of course, is a great and godly thing to do, because after all, to be a disciple or apprentice of Jesus is to learn to keep all his commands. Uh, that's what Matthew 28.20 says. And not only are God's commands as sweet as the honeycomb, they are jolly useful in lots of circumstances, especially for people like us. Because people like us don't often have the time or the ability or the wherewithal to conduct a complicated thought process about what we should do in certain circumstances, we just need a short, sharp, simple word that tells us, be angry but do not sin, or don't commit adultery, or flee from idols. Commands are great for this. They're like little rules of thumb or guides that we can use in everyday life. But as useful as commands are, they also have some inadequacies, especially if they're the only thing we use in our Christian life, if they're the sum total of our biblical thinking. And the first problem is that we still have to figure out 
whether any particular command applies in this situation in front of me or not, and that's not always clear. So, for example, flee from idols is pretty straightforward if you're faced with an idol, that is with an actual statue in a pagan temple, or you're being asked to sacrifice some meat to it. But what if the situation you're facing is not quite so straightforward? What, for example, if you're spending too much time obsessing about golf? Now, this is hard for some of you to imagine, I know, but I have a friend, shall we say, who struggles with this. Is golf becoming an idol to that person to be fled from? And how would we know when it has acquired this idolatrous status? Or would another command be more applicable in this circumstance, like do not love the world or the things of the world? Or perhaps, if we were going to be more positive about it, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Now, the commands themselves don't really help us with this. We still have some thinking and discernment in front of us. And on what basis are we to do this? What if you, quote, flee from idols to me in my golf obsession, but I come back with whatever is noble and good and excellent, think about these things. And there surely is nothing more noble and excellent than a good round of golf. How can we avoid a kind of proof texting stalemate with each other? There's another problem with just using commands, and that is simply that not every situation is covered by a command, or at least a command that is specific enough to be useful. And our issue about church and worship is in this category. There is no specific scriptural command to describe our church gatherings as worship services, or one forbidding it. In fact, there's no command at all to call our church services anything in particular. And so we might conclude that we could describe or label our church services or gatherings in any way that we like. But that also doesn't seem quite right. If Pastor Jim welcomed the congregation on Sunday to our full-tilt, foot-washing fashion show of spiritual inspiration, we might reasonably object that something doesn't seem quite right, that the nature and purpose of the gathering is not really being well expressed. Mind you, it would not take too much creativity to proof text every single expression in Pastor Jim's description if we wanted to. How we describe and frame our church gatherings would seem to be important, but there's no simple biblical command to help us out. And so what are we to do? And this is where the second common approach comes into its own. That's a focus on theology. Because the Bible isn't just commands. Among other things, it's full of theology, of theological truths and principles that are the basis for those commands. And so rather than just looking at the endpoint, at the command, we can also soak up the Bible's theology. It's teaching about God and about everything. It's grand narrative about God's purposes for the world. And we can bring all that to bear on the issues that are in front of us. We can draw out various biblical doctrines and principles and organise them into some kind of coherent order or argument, and so think and reason our way towards a conclusion that would be biblical. And like the focus on commands, a focus on the larger themes and categories of theology is an excellent thing to do. It's necessary, and it's a great gift from God. It's part of the renewal and transformation of our minds so that we can discern and live out the good and pleasing and perfect will of our Heavenly Father according to what he has revealed to us in the Scriptures. And so with respect to the question of how we should label or frame our church gatherings, 
we could draw together a number of key biblical themes or doctrines and draw some conclusions. However, as soon as we start to do this, we come across an often unacknowledged difficulty. There are lots of theological truths or principles to choose from in the Bible. And it's not only difficult to know exactly which truths or principles are relevant and should be focused on, but what order or priority they should be arranged in. For example, here is a list of various theological truths, each of them perfectly true, and what we might conclude from each one about the nature of church. In fact, this is what various people in Christian history have concluded about church on these different bases. So, for example, God is infinitely holy and good and is a consuming fire. And therefore, the emphasis in our church gatherings should be on transcendence, reverence, worship and awe. Or, God is love, and love is the chief Christian virtue, and so church should therefore primarily be a love feast in which mutual service and affection is paramount. Or we could say, God is building his church in Jesus Christ, and therefore church is mainly about building, about building people up or edification. We would also say that God is is a missionary God who welcomes the stranger and the alien. And therefore, church is actually not so much about our own in-house club, it's about the people outside the church. That's what's most important. Or we could say that God is Trinity, a trinity of eternal relationships, and therefore church is really about community and relationship above everything else. Or we might say that God's nature and excellence is spiritual and is far beyond our human understanding. And therefore, church is not so much about intellectual knowledge as it's an experience of God, of his presence and power. And we could go on. All of these excellent theological themes are true enough in themselves, but how should we employ them to understand and frame and describe our church gatherings? Not to mention a whole bunch of other themes that I haven't even mentioned or brought in. And what order or priority should we place these different truths in? With what emphasis? What conclusions should we draw? And how can we avoid doing all of this in an arbitrary or lopsided sort of way, particularly in order to justify whatever it is we want to do anyway? Thinking from theology to how we should act is completely necessary, but it's not easy. In fact, it exposes our limitations. And here's where the idea of apprenticeship becomes really useful. As disciples or apprentices of Jesus Christ, we should approach the word of Christ in Scripture with a posture of apprenticeship. That is, humbly seeking to learn from Christ's word how to read and apply Christ's word. And this idea that Scripture helps us to interpret Scripture is hardly a new one. It has a long Protestant pedigree that the more difficult or obscure passages of the Bible should be read in light of the clearer ones. However, as David Starling points out in his excellent recent book on this subject, the scripture principle, the idea that scripture should interpret scripture, doesn't only operate as a kind of tiebreaker when we have a difficult case but it's an important reformed principle of interpretation more generally. And he quotes Luther, who says, 
I do not want to be boasted of as more learned than all, but scripture alone is to rule, not for it to be interpreted by my spirit or by any human spirit, but understood through itself and by its own spirit. And Starling goes on to build on this idea that scripture itself should guide us as we read scripture. That the Bible teaches us not only what is true and what is there, but how to read and hold together all the truths that are there. And whenever we practice biblical theology, I guess we are doing exactly this. We are learning from the Bible itself how Jesus Christ is the centre and key to everything and how the whole sprawling, unfolding, complex set of books that is Scripture all finds its fulfilment and its centre in Jesus Christ and God's purposes in him. However, we can take this apprenticeship idea a little further. Scripture also teaches us, if we're humble enough to sit at its feet, how to think from theological principle to practical application. That is, Scripture constantly does the very thing that we're talking about in this article and that we often struggle to do, to reason our way from some significant doctrinal truth to some conclusion, to some moral imperative or, or situational command. We can learn from the Bible itself then not only the moral conclusions, that is the commands, and not only learn the Bible's doctrine and its theology, its theological principles, which are marvellous, but we can learn from the way that the Bible itself connects the two together. We can learn from how the biblical authors choose and order various theological truths in order to address different kinds of situations and issues. It's like an apprentice carpenter. We can learn not only the truth about hammers, but pretty importantly, when to use a hammer and when perhaps a screwdriver might be more useful. For example, from all the different ways in which the Apostle Paul could have addressed the mess in the Corinthian church, we can learn from where he did start in his first epistle to them with the theology of the cross and how he addresses the mess of their church life by constantly drawing on the wisdom of Christ crucified to address all the undisciplined, self-focused, arrogant kind of stuff that was happening in Corinth. If we were to be a good apprentice to the Apostle Paul, we'd not only take on board his theological teaching about Christ crucified, and we wouldn't only notice his commands to the Corinthians, but we would learn from how he moves from one to the other, from how he chooses the cross as his theological lamp, and then uses its light to navigate his way through all the different circumstances that the Corinthians were facing. Now, if this sounds fairly unobjectionable and not that controversial, I'm glad you think so. It's only what the Apostle Paul himself says. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you, he says in Philippians 4.9. And he says something similar in 2 Timothy 3. 10 to 14. What we have seen and heard in the apostles and in their teaching, including in their faith and their theological reasoning, we should follow and imitate and learn from. By apprenticing ourselves to scripture in this way, we can learn to be discerning in which theological truths we choose and employ and how we apply them to the decisions and questions that we have. Now, this approach in one sense is not that controversial, but it does have some very challenging implications that affect the way we approach the various issues and questions we have 
and bring the Bible to them. And I will mention just two implications. The first is that it helps us know where to look and where to start. Apprenticing ourselves to Scripture disciplines us to begin our theological investigation, our thought process, where the biblical authors do, and to focus on what they focus on. So, for example, if we were trying to think biblically about the nature and significance of our everyday secular work, the work we do each day, and we were trying to be good apprentices to Scripture, we would go to those places in the Bible where our master actually teaches on this subject, and we'd start there. We'd go, for example, to the wisdom literature and what it teaches us about the nature of work and labor in this creation. We'd look at what Paul says to the converted thief in Ephesians 4 about doing something honest with his hands so as to have something to share. And we'd go to the Thessalonian correspondence as well, probably, to those passages about idleness and the importance of not being a burden to one another. We'd go to these significant passages and then we'd place them within the wider context of, of the Bible's teaching and theology. And we'd learn from this whole process what theological themes the Bible itself thought were most significant for thinking about our everyday secular work, rather than what themes or passages we found most interesting or striking. Secondly, though, and in a related way, if we apprentice ourselves to Scripture, it helps us to get our emphasis right. It's almost impossible to overemphasize how important emphasis is. Many heresies arise from taking something that is good or true in itself and then giving it to central or important a place so that the structure of our thinking gets all lopsided and wobbly and ultimately dysfunctional. And I can't help thinking of the Roman Catholic teaching about Mary in this respect. And in the same way, many mistaken or foolish applications of Scripture to our lives arise from not learning to keep things in a scriptural proportion and order, to major on what the biblical authors major on, and to recognize as secondary or peripheral those truths or principles that lie on the margins. It means observing how the Bible's teaching on a certain subject unfolds throughout the whole Bible, the whole canon, and is fulfilled in the teaching of Christ. Emphasis is really important, and it's important not only in considering particular issues or problems, but in putting all our issues and problems in their right context or frame. The overall emphasis of Scripture, of the New Testament, is on God's plan to bring glory to the crucified and risen Jesus by gathering a people for himself, a people who are eager for good works, a people who are built and gathered through the prayerful speaking of the gospel word. Now, however you might improve that little summary I just gave then of the New Testament's big central emphasis, the point is this, apprenticing ourselves to Scripture means learning what is central and of first importance in the biblical author's minds and keeping it there in our own minds, in our own thinking and practice. Well, what to say in conclusion? None of all this means that every issue will now easily and magically be solved, of course, or that we won't still disagree with each other about what following the biblical thought process really means for us in our particular circumstances. It could be that our circumstances are different enough to warrant different conclusions. And it's certainly true that we're all flawed and fallible and kind of stupid, each in our own way. We need each other to correct and, and sharpen and encourage each other. But if we can agree that apprenticeship 
is the right posture in which to approach Scripture on any issue, then perhaps we can help each other learn what it means to bring the mind of Christ to all things. Perhaps we can begin the process of of thinking biblically and theologically about any issue or circumstance, not only with an agreed authority, that is the Bible itself, but with a shared starting point, with a shared criteria to seek to think about this issue the way the biblical authors approach it and think about it, with their starting points, with their key principles they employ, with their emphasis and their kind of train of thought. And so perhaps in this way, we might avoid a battle of flying-proof texts where we only focus on the Bible's commands or a struggle between different competing theological constructions that begin with valid enough premises but finish with wildly different conclusions. And what about the church gathering and worship and those issues? Well, I think this episode has been quite long enough, and I will say just briefly this. If we were to start with those passages where the apostles themselves draw conclusions about the nature of church, the church gathering, and do so based on theological truths and principles. And there's a a small but important bunch of passages that we'd go to in 1 Corinthians 3 and 5 and 11 to 14 in Hebrews 10 and so on. And if as good apprentices we disciplined ourselves to emphasise what they emphasised and to employ the theological categories and ideas that they employ as they think about our church gatherings, would we come to the conclusion that worship was a primary or even a very significant theological category within which to understand and describe our regular church gatherings, and in particular, the singing we engage with in our church gatherings? I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions about that. Now, for those who want to dig deeper into these ideas, and there's plenty of space to dig, let me tell you, here are three books worth exploring. They're all more on the academic end of the spectrum, and so don't uh, dive into them lightly, but there's great profit to be had from each of them. The first is David Starling's book that I've already mentioned. It's called Hermeneutics as Apprenticeship, How the Bible Shapes Our Interpretive Habits and Practices, published by Baker Academic in 2016. It's an excellent piece of work. David is an Australian biblical scholar and theologian, and he's brought together a bunch of different passages or soundings from right across Scripture, from everywhere from Deuteronomy and the Psalter through to the Gospels and the Epistles and Revelation, to show how in each one of those places the Bible itself teaches us how to read Scripture. It really is a fine, fine piece of work, and I'd recommend it very highly. Starling, as I've said, is a biblical scholar. If you want to read more from the standpoint of ethics, then Oliver O'Donovan is the go-to guy. He writes very insightfully about the importance of tracing the relationship between the Bible and its big theological narrative and principles and the ethical thought process that we must all undertake as moral agents if we want to live as God's people in the world. Uh, The book I think to read on this topic is called Self, World and Time, It's volume one of his Ethics as Theology trilogy, published by Erdman's in 2013. Particularly chapter four is worth digging into. Like all O'Donovan's work, this is a, a stretching read. It's not a long read, but it's stretching and very much worth the effort. Uh, for a systematic theology approach to all this, Kevin Van Hooser is a good person to read. He also recommends a stance of apprenticeship towards the scripture. He writes, for example, 
that good theological judgment is largely, though not exclusively, a matter of being apprenticed to the canon, of having one's capacity for judging formed and transformed by the ensemble of canonical practices that constitute scripture. Uh, that quote is from the very stimulating chapter 10 of his book, The Drama of Doctrine, and that's published by Westminster John Knox in 2005. Have a good dig around in those authors if you want to take these ideas further. Uh, it's been great having you with me again this week. Uh, I'm off on a week's holiday, as I said earlier, and so won't be putting out an edition next Monday. Um, maybe this extra long edition will keep you going um, through that uh, wilderness in which the painful truth won't appear. But in two Mondays' time, I'll be back, and we'll really look forward to talking again then. Uh, thanks so much for being with me for this episode. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.